Live from Dreerber, this is the Lock Tomb Podcast. I'm Amy. And I'm Mel. We are rereading Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. Today we'll be covering Gideon the Ninth, chapters 28 through 31. This is the bit where Gideon has the most horrible tea ever with the eighth house. It goes really poorly. And then immediately afterwards, she finds Protesilaus's head in a box. And then we get to the motherfucking pool scene. It's the scene we've all been waiting for. Truly. <laughs> all ye gays gather around. The pool scene approaches. <laughs> um, before, before we get into it, Amy, I've got a question for you. Yep. <laughs> what? Does the ninth house say before setting down for dinner? Um, what? Bon appetit. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I was like, Grace Press. <laughs> oh well, yeah, sure, that too. <laughs> Trying to like make bone puns in my head. Wow! All right, bon appetit. That's a good one. Bon appetit. Did you Let's come up with that one? Let's get ready for this yummy episode. Yeah, I did come up. With, I come up with all of them Damn. myself. Okay. That's very good. <laughs> all right. Let's jump right in to chapter 28. So we last saw Gideon get really pissed at Harrow. They had that big fight in the hallway as, you know, as happens every once in a while with your girlfriend. And Gideon. Not girlfriend. <laughs> we don't know. We'll get to this later in the episode. <laughs> Gideon decides to take her revenge on Harrow by having tea with the eighth house, which is very funny. So she ends up at the eighth house's quarters, which looks like a hospital. And like from what I can, what I imagine when I read it, it's very sparse. <laughs> it's a minimalist. They they practice minimalism. Yes. Ew. And. I can totally see how a lot of the houses are like their founder lictors, but the eighth house is a lot, just like seems to be like mercy mourn to the core, you know? It's funny that you say that because I feel like my memory of mercy mourn is the way that Moira Quirk does mercy mourn's voice, which is like really shrill and like, yeah. kind of like, Wa-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. and I... I can't actually remember that much about Mercy Morn (laughs) other than the voice, which I'm very excited to reread Harrow for the third time as we go into the kind of second season of this podcast so -hmm. that I can understand what you're saying. But shed light. Why does why do Silas and Colm remind you of Mercy Morn? Mercy Morn is very rigid and kind of black and white and is also very devout in her worship of Mm. God, but in this kind of like weird performative way Mm. that I feel like Silas is also. Mm. So Gideon is at the eighth house's quarters. She's greeted by Colm, who takes her weapons and then she goes and sits down with Silas, who just got out of the shower and Colm like braids his hair it's so weird we get a really intimate peek into their dynamic and i would argue that they have the most abusive relationship of any of the cavalier and necromancers yeah i mean it is like column is octokizaron's servant right and i found it really interesting in the description of the their rooms Mm -hmm. They say that the only splash of color was an enormous portrait of the emperor as kindly master with an expression of beatific peace. I did a bunch of research to figure out is kindly master is capitalized Mm -hmm. here. And I I was trying to figure out what that's in reference to. And it's just it's a phrase that's used to describe basically the portrayal of someone who has enslaved people. Mm-hmm. as like a kindly a kindly figure like yeah they had enslaved people but they were nice to them you know it's this like Yeesh. false kind of picture of someone who is oppressing others with the caveat that oh well they're not that bad and i i thought that was an interesting portrayal of god in this moment and we haven't met god yet mm-hmm. but it's very much kind of an accurate picture of god 
Yeah. And how they all worship him. It's so weird. And Silas is like a mini god in this specific relationship that he has with Colum. So we'll get to this. But basically, we learn that Colum was engineered for Silas to like be his servant and siphoning battery because their blood types are compatible. Essentially born into servitude. Yeah, but he's also his uncle, like their family. It's super weird. And I don't really understand what Silas wants. At- well, I do. So Silas has invited Gideon to come to their quarters. And I guess the end game is just to get her keys. But also he seems to want to tell her all the stuff about her house. So he tells her that Glorica returned to the eighth house, not alive, but as a ghost and kind of told him and his, you know, the other people at the eighth house told them about Gideon and about how all of the children had died, you know, when Gideon was young and all of this stuff about Gideon's mother. And Silas is just kind of telling Gideon this. And Gideon's like, what are you talking about? And he kind of comes in this roundabout way to saying that he thinks the ninth house is like a bad house because they killed all of the children and Gideon at this point doesn't know that they had she thinks it's just an accident that it happened and he uses that as a way to tell her to give him her keys there's this whole like thing that Silas does and then he's just like and so I hope you'll understand when I say that I need your keys from you right and there's there's some weird stuff in this conversation particularly around him talking about Gideon's mother And we don't Mm -hmm. really come back to it. He says, you know, when he's speaking to Glorica, I was more interested in the story of your mother than I was in you. When we questioned Glorica, you were an accidental inclusion. Right. We never come back to that, at least not that I can remember. So what more does Silas know about Gideon's mother? Right. It's very confusing. And he even goes as far to say that he knows that they had the same color hair. And it's kind of a weird detail. And again, we don't really get much further than that when he's talking about Gideon's mom, who we now know is Wake. Right. It's funny because I feel like for these first two books, Gideon, even though she's obviously an important character to us as readers, is like overlooked by everyone and is only really noticed in relation to other things. And actually, she's kind of the main... She's God's child and she's Wake's <laughs> child and she's like this huge deal and she has these mysterious powers. She's a big fucking deal. Silas also says that he doesn't think that anyone should become – that any of them at Canaan House should become a lictor mm-hmm. at this point. In some weird ways, I feel like Silas – I don't think he's made this decision for the right reasons necessarily – But I would not be surprised if he also realizes kind of where this is going. Because at the very end, once they figure out how to become lictors, Silas kind of assumes, I guess, that Colum has thought that Silas would be tempted to kill him and to become a lictor. Mm. And Silas is like, I'll forgive you someday for thinking that I would be tempted by that. So, (sighs) Right. I mean, even here he says, I'm unsure that any of us should become lictors since since when was power goodness or cleverness truth? It's a really wise thing for this asshole to say. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, when we get into the next chapter, there is this funny dynamic between, or I guess perceptions of the eighth and the sixth houses in Mm -hmm. that the eighth house sees everything as like right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think Palamides says something kind of funny in the next chapter that the eighth house sees everything as right and wrong, but they always somehow come out as right right by happy coincidence (laughs) right and so it's funny that silas thinks you know if we can assume that he has a general sense of how lictorhood is attained and that it's amoral Mm -hmm. that siphoning is moral (laughs) right you know because it's still the exploitation and we've talked about this the exploitation of someone else's body for your own power of all houses, what they have perfected is the closest to lictorhood. <laughs> right. And so it's it's weird. And I, I guess it's just a comment on general hypocrisy of religion, right? Because theoretically, 
the eighth house is the most devout house, mm. the most religious house, and just full of double standards and hypocrisy. Yeah. And also the idea that he's decided that he is right about this, and so he has a right to take Gideon's keys. And then we get this whole stand down between Colum and Silas. So Colum is like, wait, no, I told her that she was safe here and that we wouldn't try and attack her because Silas is basically threatening Gideon with Colum and Gideon doesn't have her weapons. And Colum's like, the only thing I have, everything is yours, but the only thing I have is my honor. And I told her on my honor that she would walk out of here. Oof, it's really tense. It's an intense back and forth. And I think uh, just another example of how Silas believes that he's the arbiter of all things moral and right mm -hmm. um, and that he himself is godlike. He says to Colum, if a wasted oath pains you, I will lead you in atonement later. And that just so reminded me of when I was growing up. I grew up Catholic. Yeah. And you went to confession. And I always thought it was this really weird thing where it was like, yeah, you can sin all you want. And as long as you go into a room with a priest and just let them know that you're sorry, it's fine. <laughs> and, and this like really struck me as I was like taken back to my childhood here where I yeah. was like, oh, wow, like you're going to actively ask this man to do something against his honor and then let him know it's fine because he'll atone later. There's right. just, it's just absurd. It is. This is also where we find out that Calm has two brothers, I believe, who were all born with the explicit purpose of being the cavalier to like the next heir to the eighth house. And they just weren't sure which one of them would be the best match. There's this great line where he's like, I was engineered as a man who doesn't pick and choose his decencies. Oof. Mm. Calm has the worst, the worst job. Yeah. I, it also gives us a little quick window into this connection between cavalier and necromancer in that there is there can be a biological there is very clearly and we know this from the thalergy and the thanergy kind of stuff biology really matters in necromancy as mm -hmm. a magic system in that in this case the siphoning and the power that a necromancer can kind of take through siphoning yeah is stronger with a stronger biological match yeah it's really interesting i'm not sure if other houses practice something similar i know that well no one else really seems to siphon i know camilla and palamides are related but yeah and it's also just shows like how institutionalized cavalier necromancer stuff is it's very formal on other houses, you know, Camilla applies to be Palamides uh, Cavalier. And <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. I think Ordis just was sort of born into it. But yeah, your lev levels of consent really mm -hmm. vary. Yeah, it's it's strange. So Gideon does get out. Colum says that the next time that they see each other, probably one of them will die. And Gideon's like, yeah. <laughs> and she <laughs> leaves. And it's this I, it's, I love this part. She leaves and she expects an argument to break out behind her to hear them like yelling at each other, but that it, it's just silence, which is so much worse. So intense. I don't like Colum, pretty neutral on the guy, but I, I do feel a little bad for him in that moment. There's nothing good is going to happen. I'm sure that Silas can like torture him with siphoning and does all sorts of weird totally. shit to him. I actually do like Colum. This chapter made me like Colum. Yeah. But, but I also think this chapter is kind of a turning point where shit starts hitting the fan. We were like, oh, there are disagreements between Cavaliers and Necromancer. Like, yeah, everything is really getting to, to people. I mean, who knows? But it seems to me that this might be one of the rare moments where Colum ever stood up to Octokizeron because throughout this whole chapter silas doesn't even look at column until column openly defies him and the way that's described it sounds like that's obviously not a normal occurrence right and so there's enough pressure and intensity happening all around that things are starting to build you can just feel the build happening yeah something's gonna burst and it does 
We get to chapter 29 and Gideon's just sort of wandering around Canaan house in this weird days because of like this weird thing that just happened to her. There's this bit that I think is so funny. She sees the skeletons, the first house servants catching fish. I went fishing this weekend. I thought about them. (laughs) Gideon then runs into teacher. And the interesting part about this is that teacher kind of out of nowhere says he hates the water. He's sitting by the fountain that's dried up and he's just like, I hate the water. I think it's horrible that we filled the pool back up again. And Gideon's like, what the fuck? But also like the more I read these books, the more I realize like how important water is. And we don't really know why yet. But there's something, especially salt water. Yeah. The water in the locked tomb, there's that sort of moat around the sarcophagus. Mm-hmm. The river is a water-based construct. There's the ocean surrounding Canaan House. They call Electo this, this salt water creature. I mean, they're about to be in the pool and salt water because of this weird, obscure rule that Harrow's mom had. It's just, there's something about salt water. Yeah, something ancient. Right. And he also says something about poor child. We never meant this to happen. And it's in the book, it says it could have been Gideon. It could have been Jean-Marie. It could have been someone else. And it could also be Kitharea. I think it's God's child, the monster. I think it's... it's uh... Electo? Yeah. Yeah. I thought about that too. Electo or Kitharea. Because he's t- he's talking about water. Right. You know, if we're to believe that it's Electo in the tomb... Right. And teachers on this water, water sex, mm-hmm. kind of bent, then to me, the logical kind of next thing he might be thinking about is Electo, since they did lock her in a tomb yeah. with water. And it's probably very traumatic. I do wonder if at least the body of Electo is someone that John knew or was close to or was even a child or, you know, a partner or something. I think it was a child. Because she's pretty young. And we'll we'll get there. We're going to have to do another episode on the excerpt yeah. that just came out. We'll have a lot more to say about this. Yes, for sure. <laughs> so then Gideon's just wandering Canaan house. It's very funny. Gideon goes to the workout room with the pool. I guess water's on her mind. And she runs into Corona Beth, who is like, hot and sweaty with a rapier practicing rapier moves and Gideon almost duels her but then Nambirius comes out and catches Corona Beth with the rapier and freaks out and is like you can't do this here and Gideon just leaves because it's super weird and awkward. Based on this moment and then a couple other moments including some moments in Harrow and in the appendix of Harrow I think that Corona Beth in many ways like wishes she was just Ianthe's cavalier. Yeah, of course. I mean, that that's the whole thing. Right. That's what she wants. Later, she's so upset that Ianthe didn't kill her. Yeah. That's... And burn her soul forever, you know? I think that's Oof. the reason that this chapter is in here. Because when I read it, I was like, why is this chapter here? Like, yeah. it's so, it's like three pages. It's just Corona Beth being really hot. And trying to duel Gideon and Gideon mm-hmm. being like, you're crazy, you know, and Nibirius getting all pissy. This is a moment where I actually kind of like Nibirius. It's the only moment yeah. where I like him. But he's protecting Corona Beth, basically being like, you can't show anyone <laughs> that you're more cavalier-like than you are a necromancer. He also says they're whispering and he's like, I won't tell her. Yeah. Like he's not going to tell Yanthe. Right. Which makes me feel like Yanthe probably has quite a bit of power over Corona Beth. Oh, yeah. I do think Corona Beth, to be fair, has her own power. She has the social power, which is nothing to scoff at. And I think that that's why they kind of make this very powerful duo. But I think Yanthe, at the end of the day, controls the part of their relationship that is the secret part. Right. And really, Corona Beth having that social capital and appearing to be so powerful is a shield for Yanthi. Totally. It is good to be underestimated mm-hmm. in your power because it allows for a lot more freedom and exploration and continued power hoarding. And Yanthi is able to get away with a lot because Corona Beth takes up so much space. Right. <laughs> and then this chapter ends with Gideon going back to 
the ninth's quarters and she's really pissed off and is stumbling around sort of seeing red really angry at harrow because she, she wasn't really able to fully realize the duel with coronabeth T with the eighth was not revenge after all. It was just super weird. So she's pissed and she opens Harrow's closet and pulls out a box that had been sort of half hidden in there, just in a fit of sort of fuck Harrow forever trying to hide stuff from me, especially given what she just heard from Silas. She must be so confused. But anyway, in this box is Protessa Lawis's head. I mean, obviously dead. Shocking moment. <laughs> yeah. And that's the end of that chapter. The severed head of Protessa Lawis Seventh. I feel like when I first read the book, when I got to this chapter, I just finished. I finished the book. Yeah. If it was after that discovery that I was like, oh, I really cannot put this down. It all kind of clicked in. I also, for a second at this part, I was like, oh my gosh, the Harold is the bad guy. Totally. That I mean, that's what, <laughs> you know, that's what they want you to believe. Right. Of course. <laughs> this is a total, this is like a classic whodunit where there's like, a couple of red herrings and then it always ends up being one of the people who you least expect which i did kind of i suspected dulcinea for a bit but they really try and downgrade her yeah well even we'll get there in the next chapter harrow says that dulcinea is downgraded in her book of suspects yeah, but right. but it is this point i mean gideon thinks harrow did it too at this point and that it's a testament to Tamsin Muir's writing that when Gideon thinks it's Harrow, the reader also thinks it's Harrow. Totally. I mean, really beautiful, brilliant lead up and just totally fucks with us. <laughs> I know. So here we are as the readers thinking that Harrow might be the bad guy or might have something to do with all these murders and Gideon's in that space too. She goes immediately to the sixth house, which is super cute. It's so cute. Yeah. She goes to the sixth house's quarters. Cam goes off to get Harrow. She throws up in their bathroom. It's like they're, you know, they live in the same hall freshman year. They're just, they're getting close. It's super cute. Yeah, I, I do like this first little, <laughs> little paragraph in chapter 30 where Gideon suspects that they put some sort of like tranquilizer or poison in the tea. Yeah. And... <laughs> The six, both, they both drink their tea and to prove that it's not poisoned and they're like looking at Gideon like, duh. Yeah. <laughs> They've done nothing to suggest their untrustworthiness mm -hmm. and yet the ninth is, is hard to win over in terms of trust. Right. I mean, Gideon has had not a lot of trustworthy people in her no. life. There is this really cool bit. So Gideon's saying over and over again that she wants to deal with Harrow and, you know, she's freaking out. And she asks Palamides what he would do if he found out that Camilla had murdered someone. <laughs> and Palamides is like, I would, you know, help her clean up the body. And Gideon's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but he has a good point, right? Like he trusts Cam so much that if she killed someone, he would trust that it was for good reasons and for obvious reasons, Gideon is not there with Harrow. I feel like when I read this, I immediately had that Backstreet Boys song stuck in my head that was like, <laughs> I don't care who you are, where you're from, don't care what you did, as long as no, I mean you love me. I was like, that's the... I'm going to think about that every time. <laughs> that's the Six Houses <laughs> mantra with each other. They just like really deeply love each other and trust each other and it's something to aspire to i mean not that accountability is not yeah. important if you killed someone we're gonna need to talk about it but if i killed someone <laughs> yeah if you killed someone i'd be like all right i you know i'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt but let's talk this through and <laughs> <laughs> oh brother <laughs> but no it's a great moment i think about Cam and Protesilaus's relationship as one that Harrow and Gideon move towards for themselves. Mm -hmm. You see what trust really looks like between those two. Yeah. And here it's so it's such a stark difference right now in the place that Harrow and Gideon are at. And we're they're not quite at the point of trusting each other. 
but we're moving in that direction. Right. And then so after this little bit, Gideon ends up telling Palamides. And this is when we learn this kind of big secret that Gideon has. Obviously, Harrow has a million secrets, but Gideon's had this secret that we as readers haven't learned yet, which is that she thinks that she killed Harrow's parents. And she tells Palamides this story about how when Harrow was young, she and Gideon did not get along and were constantly fighting and yet, you know, also kind of constantly in each other's pockets. And Harrow ends up breaking into the locked tomb or opening the locked tomb. And Gideon, because she, you know, Harrow's like her childhood nemesis, goes and tattletales on her to Harrow's parents. And as a result, Harrow's parents end up committing suicide along with their cavalier. And Harrow and Gideon were much more, I think in like a much darker way, at odds going forward from that. And Gideon has kind of carried this self-hate with her this whole time since she was 11 years old from this moment where she started to blame herself for the death of Harrow's parents. And before we move on, there's actually one of the most important sentences in this chapter that I totally missed, even the first two times that I read. Mm. You know, later we learn a little bit about the magic that protected the tomb and we learned that it was a there was a blood ward and only the king undying could open it with his blood Mm -hmm. and the whole reason right that Gideon comes into existence (laughs) is to have his blood essentially to be able to open the tomb Mm -hmm. and I kept wondering I don't get it when Hera walked through the the blood ward was it just that Gideon was there and so she was able to get through or kind of what happened and What's written right here is just hours before Harrow had opened the locked tomb, Gideon had wrestled Harrow down in the dirt and Harrow had scratched until she had half of Gideon's face between her fingernails. And so Harrow Mm -hmm. had Gideon's blood on on her and that is why she was able to walk through. Yeah. I didn't catch that the first time. And you don't even think that line is important until maybe the last two chapters of Harrow. Yeah, for sure. I think that I didn't realize that that is how Harrow got in until there's some other mention of it in Harrow. And that's when I got it. But I read all of Gideon and all of Harrow pretty much and was like, I have no (laughs) idea. But yeah, it's because she had Gideon's face in her fingernails. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild, but you would never be able to pick up on that in your first read. No. There's so many little lines that become so much more important in Harrow. Palamides, of course, points out that Gideon didn't kill Harrow's parents. Obviously, she made choices that led to their deaths, but she is not to blame for that. And then he makes this funny analogy about how he killed Abigail and Magnus because he didn't stab teacher in the face (laughs) when they landed on Canaan House. And Gideon's like, what? And (laughs) there's this line that I just – just this last read, I was like, ooh, where Palamides is like, all I ask is that you put some pen and flimsy in my cell so that I can start on my memoirs. Basically, Palamides ends up in a cell in the river. And he's like, I can't believe that there's a pen and paper here that manifested here. And I feel like there's a little bit of he created yeah. it in this moment. I don't think that's actually it's true. It's funny. It's funny. It's just funny yeah. to think about. I want to think it was intentional. <laughs> yeah. It might have been. It might have been. Yes. Gideon then shows, this is so juicy. Gideon then shows Palamides. Gideon's just burying her soul to Palamides. She shows him that note with her name on it that she found in the the literal lab. And Palamides is like, hmm, weird. This is 10,000 years old. Uh, Let me hold on to this. And then Harrow and Camilla show up. And Camilla has somehow handcuffed her and Harrow together. And instead of Palamides being like, what the hell, Harrow, you killed Protesilaus, he's like, why didn't you tell me? So he already knew, like, he's known this whole time that Gideon's been freaking out. And I'm kind of like, Palamides, you couldn't have said something, but... Yeah, I mean, you know, it it builds up the suspense, it makes it more shocking for us. Right. But I also kind of think that he wanted Harrow to say it. Like, he wanted Gideon to hear it from Harrow. Yeah, that's true. And 
Palamides is wiser beyond his years. He is just so, the way that he talks to Gideon, I feel like so many of us, when we're young, blame ourselves for things that are so far out of our control and where adults have failed us. And again, another really beautiful example of Palamides kind of playing therapist (laughs) in a way. Yeah. And I just think it's really kind and wise and something that so many of us need to hear. And I just love how this is written out in this moment because I can imagine readers also reading this chapter and thinking about their own lives and being able to connect to it in such a deep way. I just, I love Palamides so much. And this is just another example of that. Yeah, totally. So once they've all, you know, had this mini confrontation, Harrow's like, I don't know. I didn't know if I could trust you. And then they end up going and gathering everyone so that they can go and confront Dulcinea. And basically they give Dulcinea this head. And instead of being surprised or shocked, she's like, oh, man, like, I'll never be able to fix him now. You've ruined him. And it comes out that basically, and I've read this part really carefully, and it's true that Kitharea never lies, doesn't explicitly lie. She definitely omits and she definitely sort of twists the truth. But she's like, Dulcinea Septimus was never meant to come here. There was a very good cavalier, so they decided to send the two of them, but then the cavalier had an accident. And later she explains that when she killed Protesilaus, it was an accident. Like, he drew on her before she was ready, and she wasn't, I guess, quite – she wasn't going to kill him right away. So in a way, it's the truth. But obviously this is all just her distracting and and leading them away from the truth. And then she has this big cough attack and – um. I think it might be it might be real. It might be kind of I think it's total bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Something that I love when they first confront Dulcinea is that Ianthe says, Well, this is the only interesting thing she's ever done. <laughs> you know, and I just yeah, we start to Ianthe <laughs> starts to get met more magnified towards the end of this chapter and and we'll talk about that in a minute, but she does. You get a little taste of what you're about to experience in the next in the next book with Yanthi. Yeah. I think the other real stretch is that Kitharea speaks in the hypothetical and tells a lot. She basically claims that there was an accident and that it was a conspiracy for the whole seventh house to basically puppet Protesilaus because this is the best chance that they have. And she says all of this in the hypothetical. I mean, it's a real stretch. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's she's yeah. obviously she's lying, but she's not lying, lying. She's twisting the truth, which is almost worse. But she's she's a little bananas. So she is. She's definitely gone through it. <laughs> it's interesting that a little a little bit later, Harrow says that she's downgraded Dulcinea, but Harrow really seems to indicate that something is up and continues to push, say, this is not possible. Yes. Because I I think someone says, oh, well, you know, when you're dying, you become a stronger necromancer. And Palamides basically nips that in the bud real quick. And Harrow is really just pushing, like, this really isn't possible. And Kitharea is like, well, how about all of the you know, if you had many people in on this and she's like, it's still not possible. Like now Protesilaus is here and you're the only one here. And so she knows something is funky. Right. And that this should not exist. But Kitharea still claims that this is just a practice that they've been perfecting in the seventh house for many, many, many years. Yeah. I love that Harrow tries to claim that the head is hers by finder's rights. <laughs> <laughs> I found it first. Yeah, it's really funny. There's also a really funny Ianthe joke. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> which is basically how Ianthe is, I feel like, the entirety of Harrow. But someone says, I forget what the prompting is. No, this is important. This is funny, too, even before. The prompt is important. Corona is agreeing, like, no, Harrow, it's not your head. And she says, today isn't the day. When we start to use one another's bodies, or tomorrow, or ever, we're not barbarians, which is hilarious in its own right, 
for what what we know. Yeah. And then Ianthi says, some people will do anything to get ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sheer prevarication. Some people will do anything to get ahead. <laughs> it's good. It's a very good joke. I bet Tamsin Muir had a good laugh when she wrote that joke. Oh, my God. No doubt. I mean, Tamsin Muir obviously had a really good time writing this. You can just tell. Yeah, definitely. There's this really funny bit also from Judith. Everyone's coming through with these jokes where <laughs> Judith is like, does anyone else want to like come forward and admit that they're already dead or a flesh construct or any other relevant objects? <laughs> then Dulcinea has another cough attack. We're kind of like, we forget that that's what Judith just said. But I just realized reading this, that teacher comes in a couple paragraphs later, having heard what Judith had just said and says, Maybe later, Lady <laughs> Judith, because he's a he is another relevant object. Right, like he, <laughs> and he, it's just such a funny. I had not noticed it, but teachers basically like taking this at face value and is like, "Oh, I'm not going to admit it now, but we've got a lot of people who are not just normal humans around." Totally. There's also a funny exchange between the third house where. Nibirius is like, oh, I always said he didn't look right. And both the twins are like, no, you didn't. What are you talking about? I don't know. We just get a series of really funny interactions between the characters. And it's a good chapter. It is. And it's it's loaded. So the second basically says to teacher, you need to contact, you know, you need to contact the mm. house. Yeah. And teacher's like, I can't. And in that moment... Judith and Marta are like, hmm, and then they leave. And so later we find out that that's where they're going. Yeah, so so actually timeline-wise, everything from this moment forward happens very quickly. This is in like 48 hours. The rest of everything happens. Yep. Or even less. I think less. I think it might be like a 24, well, it's between a day and two days, I would say. Yeah, so... I think at this point, Judith and Marta, they probably don't go straight to teacher's quarters, but they they probably go to like discuss their plan of action. And then very soon after that, go and basically, you know, attack teacher or, well, I think he attacks them, but they are trying to get to the communications device that goes to the emperor. So that's like kind of where we are in the timeline. Everyone else, I think the third at this point is probably very close to, I think that some of the things that Ianthe is learning via this head is also important. And I think also there's a moment where Harrow, someone says, oh, you know, Dulcinea should have died from the shock of the construct being torn apart. And someone else says that's not how. Oh, Ianthe. Ianthe. Well, someone says. And someone responds to that and says, well, maybe it was diluted by the fact that there were many people who had done it. And Ianthe says, that's not remotely how it works. And Harrow does the, this thing again where she reconsiders Ianthe as a threat. Yeah. And the imagery is amazing because I think the line is, Harrow was quivering like a maggot next to a dead duck. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because when I, again, as I am wont to do and glossed over any details on my first read... I would have interpreted that quiver to be fear of Ianthe, but a maggot next to a dead duck is hunger. Yeah. So interesting. <laughs> she knows that Ianthe's a threat and she wants to know more and she's really hungry for that knowledge. Yeah. So I think that pretty much covers chapter 30. And then we get to chapter 31, which is just pretty much entirely the motherfucking pool scene. The pool scene. It is such a good chapter. I feel like it is the most fan-arted <laughs> scene of either of the books, I think. It is beautifully written. It is the gayest thing you'll ever read in your, your young gay life. So gay. It is so good i am on an emotional roller coaster through this chapter no matter how many times i i've read it and i've read this chapter more than i've read the books i just oh, yeah <laughs> sometimes i just go back and i read it because because <laughs> it's so good yeah i do that all the time the part where where harrow freaks out and is like i have tried to dismantle you yeah Ugh. i 
I mean, I literally just got goosebumps. <laughs> Let's go through it. And then, okay. and then we're going to spend some time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's like just walk through what happens really quickly. And then we can talk about things we noticed. How about that? Cool. So Harrow leads Gideon away from this meeting of necromancers and cavaliers to confront Dulcinea. And Gideon is about to freak out at her. But Harrow's like, can you please follow me? And Gideon is kind of like taken aback by the please and follows Harrow. Harrow takes her to the workout room slash pool and takes off her robes and gets in. And so does Gideon. And they have this big conversation where basically the biggest takeaways information-wise are the knowledge that Harrow's parents and family killed everyone in their generation in order to create Harrow with the Thanergy that was released. And we also learn about, more or less, we learn that Harrow's quote unquote in love with the body in the tomb. I feel like that's kind of the main information we get from this. Well, we also learn that Gideon doesn't die. Oh, yeah. And that's a big deal. <laughs> right. Which Gideon's like, why didn't I die? Why didn't you guys try and kill me? And Harrow's like, we did, and you didn't die. You were right next to the vent with this bacteria that we were killing all the rest of them with, and you just didn't die. When I read that the first time, I, was, I just like kind of took that at face value and didn't really read into it. But it's because she has powers. Mm. So that's basically what happens. However. <laughs> <laughs> However, so much more happens. And <laughs> it is... I feel like my heart beat so fast through this whole chapter, and I just wanted them to make out, and they didn't. So let's talk about what doesn't happen. They don't make out. They don't make out, although there are so many times where Tamsinir definitely wrote it to be like, you as the reader are like, oh my god, this is the moment. Yes. <laughs> there's like, there's this moment, so at the very beginning... Harold is standing by the pool and she says, the time, This is the way it's written is, this is the, the time best. has come. This is one of my favorite, <laughs> my favorite parts. Yeah, it's like, so she's, Tamsin Mir is playing with us. She says, the time has come. And then it proceeds to, to say that Harrow drops her robe to the ground, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and Gideon's like, what? And, and then Harrow continues to tell you everything. Like, come on. But then, and and Gideon, again, this is why the writing is so good, because at that point, again, my heart beats faster. And then in the next line, Tamsin writes Gideon hysterically, profoundly embarrassed at how her heart rate had spiked. Yes. You know, Gideon is us in this moment. It's just like, it's written so well. Ugh. So they get in the pool. They get in the pool and Hera's like, we have this rule or like my mother had this tradition where if we were going to talk about these secrets of the ninth house, we would have to be immersed in salt water. And okay, this is definitely Tamsin Muir's way of getting these two girls wet in a pool together. Oh, yeah. That's why it exists as a thing. But it also is definitely something to do with Electo and the salt water and the, you know, this and that. Mm -hmm. Oh, we do learn that Harrow knew about Protesilawas from day one. Like she was suspicious of him and thought he was a beguiling corpse. Right. And Gideon's like, dude, why didn't you tell me, man? And Harrow's explains, I had reason to believe you would not trust me. Right. That you would trust anyone else other than me. And Harrow wanted to be sure and explains that she really wanted to have all the facts laid out and the evidence right. before just telling Gideon because she had reason to believe that Gideon would trust anyone else over her. And right. she wasn't wrong. And Gideon's really upset because she's like, why didn't you tell me you killed Protesilaus before you sent Jean-Marie and her necromancer down to the facility to look for for him you know you already got got you know knew he was dead and harrow basically explains like and we talked about this i think a few episodes ago she didn't trust sextus or septimus right and so felt that she could take them on herself and thought she was actually protecting mm -hmm. gideon which i thought was cute yeah and and it, a moment of like wow everyone is just really misunderstood here right and Harrow expresses like immense remorse over 
and regret over the fourth's death and says the ninth is deep in their blood debt and I'm undone by the expense. And Ugh, yeah. and also says, I didn't want to hurt you. I didn't want to disturb your equilibrium. And Gideon says, if my heart had a dick, you would kick it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was just a great line. Uh, I love Gideon. And Harold's like, no, I just didn't want to alienate you more than I already had. And that, you know, our relationship was too tenuous to risk it. Right. And aside from this, I actually had a question and I forgot about this. Harrow explains that Protesilaus already had a blade through his heart when she found him and that the head just kind of fell off, you know, when she she touched mm -hmm. him. Who who put the knife through him? Was it the third? No, no, I think that she's saying that, like, he died from a blade through the heart. And that's because that's how oh. Kithrea uh, killed him. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And that I think that he was like, I don't know why his head fell off. <laughs> Maybe she also beheaded him. I don't know. But anyway, her, his head is like not attached. So right. <laughs> um, at some point, she also cut his head off. <laughs> and he was just held together by magic. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. That makes way more sense. That confused me. So... Harrow has this whole she's she's like, I hated you because I hated myself because I couldn't die when my parents wanted me to die. Like I cost too much to die and I like wasn't brave enough to kill myself when my parents also killed themselves and, you know, kind of lays out this whole horrible trauma that she's been through, but blames herself for it all. And Gideon, instead of being angry at her more or wanting to punish her just completely and immediately forgives her <laughs> and i think that for some people this might seem abrupt but i think that actually gideon's been ready for this for a long time she's not a resentful person i think she was ready to forgive harrow she just wanted harrow's attention and care she doesn't care like really what harrow's done totally it's like how harrow treated her and again, I think is quick to forgive Harrow because they were children and it was the adults that failed them. Right. And pit them against each other. And I, there's a really great kind of description of once Harrow communicates to Gideon that the reason her parents were so cruel to Gideon is because they were afraid of her because she didn't die. And Gideon essentially was a walking symbol of the incredible sin of the house. Right. And when Gideon has that information, there's a great paragraph. And Timson writes, Memory took Peliamina's steady gaze and refocused the way it slid through and over Gideon from contempt to dread. So what Gideon interpreted as contempt was actually dread. And again, it's not Harrow's fault, right? It's not Gideon's fault. It's the adults in their lives. And that's mm -hmm. why I think Gideon's quick to forgive Harrow because they both now have this realization that it, it wasn't them. They were children. Right. And it's right. heartbreaking. I mean, this entire exchange is really heartbreaking where they're starting to realize their shared trauma over what everything right. that happened and the harm that they caused each other. As we know, hurt people hurt people, and that's what was happening here. Yeah. They're all so wet and gay. <laughs> they're wet and gay. It's easy, to, it's easy to forgive someone when they're wet and gay. <laughs> it's true. So they have this exchange. Harrow is a livid that Gideon deigns to forgive her. She has this whole freak out and says, like, I have tried to dismantle you. You were my whipping girl. I, like hated you because i hated myself basically it's a really really good outburst if, on harrow's part if you haven't listened to the audiobook this chapter is brilliant in yeah. audio and the way that moira quirk reads the piece that you're quoting right i took you to this killing field as my slave and you refused to die and you pity me the way that Moira Quirk reads that is so visceral and so good. Just, I cannot recommend the audiobook enough. It's so good. <laughs> and 
Gideon dunks Harrow in the water, and Harrow, it's... <laughs> It makes it sound like Harrow thought that she was being ritually drowned at first, but then realizes it's just a hug. <laughs> Freaks out. How ninth of her. Yes. She hated that it was a hug. But they end up kind of at the side of the pool, and there's this uh, heart-melting moment where Gideon kind of pulls Harrow's head off of her shoulder and looks at her really deeply and says, too many words how about these one flesh one end bitch and she she says say it loser to harrow and harrow says one flesh one end and i feel like this is when they really become necromancer and cavalier for good or ill like this is what most cavaliers and necromancers have to say to each other when they kind of commit to this relationship and they say it in this moment and it's really beautiful it also sounds like they're about to make out uh well gideon does kiss harrow on the forehead it's true it's true it's very sort of um, very pg it's very pg but i there are so many signs in this bit that that gideon i think has feeling this is well it's very romantic it's uh, you this is a romantic scene in every way i don't it's very homoerotic i don't disagree (laughs) I think it is really romantic, and I think it's a romantic friendship. Oh my goodness gracious! I, hold on, go on. Let's let's talk through these last like four pages, and then we can juke out whether or not this is this is <laughs> romantic or not. Okay. So they sit on the side of the pool, and they have this nice, comfortable silence. They're holding hands, and. Um, <laughs> Gideon asks Harrow what's in the tomb, and Harrow says, it's a girl, and the reason I decided to live is because I wanted to be alive if this if this person ever woke up. Now tell me there's nothing more romantic than that. I mean, it's weird. It's <laughs> not actually anyone she's ever met, but yes, it is really romantic. I think it's this sort of Harrow's tendency to be sort of obsessive. mm but she's in love with this body in this tomb, and Gideon calls her out on it. She's like, you have the hots for this this, this frozen- Chilly weirdo. This chilly weirdo in a coffin. And the lead up to that, again, is another moment that Tamsin is, you think it's something's going to oh, happen. Oh, yeah. It's, as she approached Harrow, grew very still, and her throat worked, and her eyes opened black and wide- She looked at Gideon without breathing in, her mouth frozen, her hands unmoving, a perfect bone carving of a person. (laughs) One last question for you, Reverend Daughter. Nav? (laughs) Nav? Do you really have the hots for some chilly weirdo in a coffin? I think I put the book down after that. I was so upset. (laughs) I know. They should have kissed. (laughs) But I think that before that, Gideon's kind of coming to terms with the fact that Harrow has feelings for someone else. And I think that that's there's this Mm. image of the waves lapping against the pool and her mind kind of taking in this information that Harrow is giving her and kind of realizing what it means and, and coming to this conclusion that she loves this chilly weirdo and i'm not sure if she's super jealous of it but she definitely is is it's a moment of like realization and coming to terms with it i mean my heart hurt after that i know mm. so on that note we had a great audience question from buzz thank you for writing in buzz and buzz asked what we thought about cam and pal's relationship and also about Harrow and Gideon's relationship, <laughs> because as as we all know, Mel and I are at odds. <laughs> <laughs> I think here's the thing. I don't we're not totally at odds. I think what I was dealing with at the period in my life when I first read it was the like chains of monogamy. Mm-hmm. where I actually think, if anything, these books are super queer and super poly. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I feel that my Scorpio possessiveness mm-hmm. like really came out in this chapter where I was like, no, I don't want Harrow to have feelings for anyone else. I just want Harrow and Gideon to be together. Yeah. And I do think there are different ways that there are different types of relationships that people have with different people. And I 
I do think there's deep love between Gideon and Harrow. Mm-hmm. I don't see it as a sexual kind of love. Hmm. I see it as a romantic love. I see it as really doing anything to to be around someone, to protect them, right? Like a really, really deep love. I see it as a couple kisses and hugs here and there. But I really don't see it as as sexual um, in the way that I think there are sexual relationships in these books. They're not as explicit. We get like maybe one funny sex scene or in Harrow and plus the arm thing, you know, like, but these books aren't overly sexual, mm-hmm. I think, between characters. But I don't even think it's suggested in these books that Gideon and Harrow have or will ever have a sexual relationship. So that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, I don't. So, okay, this is what I think. I think Harrow is pretty infatuated and distracted by this Electo, the body in the tomb. I think that her feelings for Gideon are very complicated and kind of hidden underneath a lot of layers of stuff. But I do think that she loves Gideon deeply and is very in this like sort of way where I feel like it's a super queer fine line between friendship and something more. Mm-hmm. But I do think that she recognizes that she is in love with Electo. But I think Gideon has feelings for Harrow. I feel like there are many times where they are expressed. There's mostly, so I'm I'm basing most of this off of when Gideon comes back in Harrow and is kind of talking to Harrow in Harrow's body. (laughs) (laughs) She has this bit where she's like trying to make Harrow say gross things. And she's like, you're very obviously attracted to, and like, Things like that, where she's there is this unspoken attraction that they definitely have, even if maybe it's never going to happen. But like, I think that there's definitely an attraction there. And also, there's a bit where Eanthe's like, "You're just mad because she doesn't love you or something." Oh, right. And Gideon's like, "That was never the point. Even if I wanted her to, because she is in love with this thing in the tomb." And then after that, it it says something like. I'm not sure which part of the conversation you would have been angry if you or if you would have been if you would have felt sorry for me or been angry at me for that conversation. And mm. I know which one would have been worse. And I think that's implying that Harrow being sorry for Gideon after that conversation would imply that she doesn't share these feelings. I don't know if they'll ever get together, but I do think that they I do think especially I'm from Gideon's side that there is an attraction to Harrow. There's also the bit where Harrow smiles and it turns her face into an affliction of beauty that Gideon had heretofore managed to ignore. Right, totally. Yeah, yeah. I do not think that Gideon's desperately in love with Harrow in the super on-the-surface way. But I do think that she has this attraction to Harrow. And I do think that there is a world in which they get together and I would not be surprised. Like I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) We can all hope and dream. I think, I think one of the gayest things in this chapter is, you know, after the chili weirdo comment, the rest of the evening, they can't be out of each other's presence and they just talk Mm -hmm. all night about bullshit and whatever. And I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about like all the past partners that I've had where like you get together and then you're so excited that you just spend so many hours just talking and talking mm-hmm. that's just so gay and you holly to me I, I know love, I love it so much we've all done it <laughs> it's funny because Buzz actually thinks the opposite of me that Harrow is more up on this than Gideon is Harrow has more is more aware of her feelings than Gideon is which is interesting because I do think it's so it's complicated. It's a romantic relationship. You're right. Whether or not it's sexual is is TBD. Whether or not it actually happens, but whether or not this is goes beyond you know deep platonic love, we'll we'll have to see. But I def it's it's explicitly homoerotic. Yes, 
There's no doubt about that. Yeah. It's just homoerotic in like the most lesbian sort of way, which is just so much emotion. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I know about that. Also, Buzz was asking about Cam and Powell, and I know this has been a big debate in the fandom, a huge debate. It was not a pretty debate at some points, I think. But I think the thing is that Cam and Powell are obviously very tight. Some people think it's romantic and interpret it as as romantic, or at least often that Camilla has feelings for Palamides. And then Buzz thinks that Cam is more of like an Ace Arrow character. And I've I've seen that theory before, and I I think that's a really good theory as well. And so I think the issue is that because they're related, <laughs> they're cousins. I think they're like second cousins. Because of that, it does get a little bit incestuousy if you if they are together. But I would say, okay, a of all, they're not. <laughs> they're not together in the books. As far as we know. But it seems like Palamides is really into Dulcinea. Right. And and we've talked about this before. And again, why I think these books are so queer is because not all romantic relationships have to be sexual. Right. And regardless of whether or not a character is asexual, which would be great if we had that even more explicit representation, their relationships aren't about sex. Their relationships are about power. There's a lot of like power over. There's a lot of interesting like power dynamics that get explored in these books. And I kind of appreciate, even though, you know, we all want to see everyone have sex with each other, obviously. (laughs) But at the end of the day, I really appreciate that these books are, are way more rooted in emotion and power and just go so much deeper than the sexual kind of interactions between characters. Yeah. Otherwise, it would be just like young adult. (laughs) Right. And that's why there's so much discussion around these books is we're all coming at them from our own different experiences, our, you know, queerness in so many different ways that it shows up. And so, honestly, you can believe anything you want about these characters. If that's how you, you know, want to interpret the dynamics, then there isn't necessarily a right or a wrong. And I and I think Tamsin Muir leaves it open on purpose. And that's what makes it so much fun to read these books. Yeah. And the interesting thing I think with Cam and Pal is that I think I was tempted at least to think that their relationship was sort of perfect, reading Gideon and even reading Harrow. And then it's really interesting. It was Judith in her writing in that appendix bit at the end of the paperback version of Harrow that kind of changed my mind about Cam and Pal. They obviously have a really, really good relationship in many ways. And whether or not Cam has romantic feelings for Palamides, she definitely is whole. I mean, she literally is like holding onto this piece of skull that she's put together like a puzzle. And Judith is kind of like, okay, sure. You have this this thing that you want to do, you, you want to, his soul's attached, but like you're holding on to, like you're holding on to this person too hard. You've, you've made them into like something that they're not. They're gone. And I think in this book, they're gone is kind of a gray area. And we know, we know Palamides is not gone. And again. Yeah. And they like become, I mean, it's heavily implied that they become a lictor together however that works in sort of reverse but i do think that there's this obsessive you are my everything even if it were a romantic relationship is not necessarily healthy healthy yeah it doesn't seem like like it's necessarily a super healthy relationship or the way that cam deals with palamity's death is not necessarily like super healthy even if it ends up that she's right and then he is there and they do become lictors and or she does become a lictor, whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, arguably, Harrow's way of dealing with Gideon's death is far worse. <laughs> oh, yeah. No <laughs> doubt. But I do think that I I always thought that Gideon and Harrow had a fucked up relationship. Yeah, I kind totally. of thought that Cam and Palamides <laughs> had this perfect right. 
thing, but you know, it's complicated. I don't think that they are perfect. I think that they're like enmeshed right. a little bit too much. That Judith makes a good point. And Judith yeah. is like, I went through this. I tried to be too close to my cavalier and it really, and my cavalier taught me that we needed some distance basically that we, right. And that, that was explicitly romantic. But like, I mean, if there is anything that Tamsin Mira is good at, and let's face it, Tamsin Mira is good at a lot of things. So many things. It is building really complex characters. Mm-hmm. And I think that if I have a prediction for Nona, it's that we're going to see many more dimensions of Palamides and, and Camilla. 100%. And even, you know, with Judith, who also appears to be a really two-dimensional character, then we get that awesome, you know, short story in the back, and it totally blows open any kind of assumptions that we might have made about Judith. And so, again, I think every single character, and it's part of the larger theme of these books, and specifically tied back to Catholicism and God as, as... a god, right? As someone who should be worshipped as a Jesus figure, right? Where you die and then and then he's risen, right? And that mythology around like heroes and putting people up on pedestals and the lesson that we learn over and over again in these characters is one, no one is perfect and two, it's really unhealthy to think of anyone that way. Right. And so just again, continuing to strip down that facade of perfection and I don't think that Palamides and Camilla's relationship is an exception to that theme. Yeah. So thank you, Buzz, for writing in. It was really fun to to get your message and to we already like we like started discussing. And we were like, we have to wait. We have to wait for the <laughs> for the episode. I think we should wrap up here for today. Thank you so much for joining us as always. If you liked listening, please rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. And like Buzz, if you've got questions or comments or want to point something out that we missed, please send us a question on our website, LockedToomPod.com or on Twitter at LockedToomPod. We release episodes on Tuesdays wherever you find podcasts. Thank you, as always, to Olivia Kay for our amazing theme music. I'm Amy. And I'm Mel. And we'll see you next time here at the Locktoom Podcast.